Hello everyone, welcome to You, Me, Them, Everybody. My name is Brandon Weatherby. This episode is with Ben Terrace. He is a writer for the Washington Post, a fantastic writer for the Washington Post. He's been on the show multiple times. I've known Ben since 2010. One of the best things I read in 23 with his book, The Big Break. I've spoken about the book on this podcast. There's a link to buy the book in the podcast description. If you're going to read one of three books about politics in 2023, I'd put Ben's at the top. We've been doing this show since 2008. It is the end of 2023. So does that make it year 16? We're doing the 16 years? Something like that. We have a Patreon. Please consider donating if you can. We've recorded five live shows this year. So thanks to everyone that's come to those. Thanks for everyone that's listened to lots of the shows with Joe McAdam. If you don't know, I'm also the publisher of Recommend If You Like. Go to riylmag.com for that. Without further ado, here's Ben. Buy his book. How are you right now? I'm good. How are you? It is December 19th at 1031 in the morning. Could you tell me what you had to do yesterday? Uh, I'm working on a year-end project. It's like not really a big, a big story, but my colleague Monica Hesse and I are doing kind of a compilation of what happened in the past year, you know. 2023 as remembered through 52 weeks of stories so every week gets a story speaking of weeks you might have written my favorite piece of the trump administration i just remembered it right now you did that, that like crazy week in review week piece do you remember this oh yeah yeah well we did a couple of those the the oral history of last week exactly yeah <laughs> it might have it was it the scaramucci week did you do that that was our best one, I think, the Scaramucci one. Yeah, an oral history of of the Scaramucci week was was pretty wild. Why? Okay, let's go back to the start. I guess I've mm -hmm. known you for probably my entire time in Washington D.C. I've been here since 2010. And I think I met you in 2010. Yeah, that's right. What brought you to this town? Pun intended. Uh, well, um, I got offered a job at a place called National Journal, which I know you know well. Uh, I did not know it well at the time. I'd never heard of it. I had just signed a lease on an apartment in Waltham, Massachusetts, and was working for a hyper-local website called Patch.com, where I was covering um, the town of Sudbury, Massachusetts, which I got to write my favorite story I ever wrote, which was about a man who was searching for Babe Ruth's piano at the bottom of a lake in Sudbury, because there were rumors that Babe Ruth had somehow lost a piano in that lake. Uh, so I left a pretty good gig, if you think about it that way. Well, well did, did he find the piano? He found a piece of a piano that came from the right time period, according to, um, you know, piano and, um, I don't know, historical experts that looked at it. So he was getting pretty close. Um, and so I was in, in, in Massachusetts and I got offered a job to come down to cover politics. I never really cared that much about politics and didn't really want to live in Washington. And to come down here, I proposed to my then girlfriend who, uh, was like, is this really a proposal? Or are you just doing this? So I'll move with you to Washington, which was sort of true. <laughs> I, promised, I, I promised her that we'd be here for a year. We're still married and we've been in DC now since 2010. So coming up on 14 years. What month did you start at National Journal? Because I wonder if it was exact same time my then girlfriend, now wife started. Yeah, I think it was exactly the same time. I don't remember the month, but it was part of this kind of big group of people that all came in at the same time. That's horrifying because it was the yeah. same deal. It was supposed to be like six months and we're both still we're for the people that don't know, we're what a mile and a half away from each other, a mile away from each other. Yeah, that's about right. And you look, I, I, I'd say the reason that we're here is because, A, you know, work kept us here. But mm -hmm. it turns out like Washington's not so bad. If you 
find the right people. If you find, you know, there's lots of, my wife is a jeweler. So there's this whole artist community that I got to know and there's good music and good food and good bars and good people who don't, you know, only wear khakis and talk about politics all day. You just got to find them. Here's my issue with that. Uh, Maybe we should be, maybe we should be talking about khakis and politics more because when I was in Chicago, I had way more conversations about politics than I've ever had in Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C., we I have way more conversations here about power dynamics, sure, but nothing about policy, like literally nothing. Yeah, I get that. I think it's because people are like actively trying to push away from it in their social lives. If it's yeah. not, you know, if that's not how they want to define themselves. Um, you know, I went I'm a Jewish guy. I went to to uh, college in Ohio for a year, Kenyan College, and I was like one of the only Jewish people around. And I like started going to synagogue because no one else was Jewish. And then I went to Brandeis. I transferred and was surrounded by Jews. And I kind of became the least Jewish I've ever been. So yeah. maybe that's what it's like in Washington where it's like, yeah, we got enough people talking about politics. Maybe we don't have to be the ones doing it. And then everybody feels that way. I agree to a point. I think the bigger issue is you, you the futility of it all like really sinks in really quickly once yeah, you arrive here. That's right. And that's, that's a horrible way to live. Yeah, no, that's right. And look, I came here not because I cared um, about covering politics. I just always wanted to write about people and stories and tension and drama And it does turn out that like, as much as I don't love politics as a coverage area, you know, I don't want to define myself as being a political reporter, even though I am one, it does have all that stuff, right? I mean, there is drama, there is tension, there are people and personalities, and they're all thrown together and forced to like wander the same halls and work together or hate each other or learn to not hate each other. And it is really interesting. If you you think about everybody here as an actual person dealing with actual things, it is more interesting than just a place of like, you know, poles and, and rat race and horse race and all that sort of stuff. That's why I think I like your book so much, because it's not like a, it's not about any one power player. It's about the fringes of it all. But the fringes make it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's how I thought about it. And also what used to be fringe is now on the center stage, right? Like all yeah. these kind of wackos that I used to cover at National Journal and then eventually at The Washington Post, where where I work now. I like to find kind of sideshow characters. That's that, that I talk about this in the book a little. And I thought these sideshow characters were interesting because A, they were interesting just on their face. And B, because I thought they kind of helped explain American culture in a way that some of the people on the center stage didn't. But in the you know 14 years I've been here, those kind of wackos and fringy people, you know, the sideshow characters are now the main show. I mean, that's maybe less so in the Biden administration. I mean, definitely less so in the Biden administration. But during the Trump years, it was like all these people that maybe used to be the kind of people that only I would cover. All of a sudden we're getting covered by all the like, you know, real serious journalists who only cover administrations and the most important power players in America. I feel like this is the exact time I should be mentioning that I am closely not related i am was close with someone that's one of the six subjects in your book who is that ian walters oh yeah ian ian walters and i were on the same stage for 18 months in a row every single week i was invited to his wedding i did not go to his wedding only in retrospect do i really wish i went to that wedding ian hid his entire political side from all of his musician friends from all of his comedy friends the entire time until the CPAC blow up where he said uh, Michael Steele was the wrong guy to be the head of the. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Ian was a a very fascinating character. I mean, um, basically his his role in the book is he is a Republican who works for a real Trump loyalist for, for many, many years. And he's kind of part of 
the MAGA universe. He's a spokesman for the MAGA universe in a way. And due to a kind of falling out with um, the man that he works for, he was so close with this guy, Matt Schlapp. He was so close with Matt that he wanted Matt and Mercy, his wife, to become the godparents to one of his children. They have this falling out, which kind of, you know, unravels his entire political persona. And when you're in Washington, your political persona can often be a big part of who you are. And so, you know, his whole work life kind of fell out around him. He does have the side life that, that you know, um, as a talented musician, but, you know, those two lives kind of bled together at points and he, he was dealing with a real identity crisis. I mean, I think a lot of the people in this book were dealing with an identity crisis, but maybe no one more, more so than Ian. You say that a lot of these people's jobs are their identity. He literally hid that identity from everyone and including the owners of the bars where mm -hmm. he played. And he hasn't stopped performing like this weekend. We are recording on December 19th. I think on the 22nd, he's playing the D.C. holiday market in downtown D.C. Yes, I'm going to guess that 99%, if not 100% of the people that see him there will not connect that that's the guy from CPAC. Oh, no. Yeah, no, almost no one will. And in fact, I mean, that's not his identity now. He's no longer part of CPAC. He's sort of a man in the wilderness. He's still a conservative, but he's not a, a Trump guy. He's not a CPAC guy. And what does that make you if you're if you're neither of those things right now in the Republican Party? He's kind of just a guy who plays music and, and can't find a, a, a way to make a living in, in the world that he always has. But this is why I think we should maybe talk about politics more. You've been on my show. We've done this show, the live version of it, probably three, four, five times, whatever. I've done hundreds of episodes, uh, and I used to do a lot. The show used to be just this, one-on-one, -on -one, right? It's one-on-one -on -one like this. We're not going to talk about politics unless it's someone like you that writes about politics or whatever, right? Ian had sat through four dozen, five dozen monologues, most of which are political, and he's playing the role of Paul Schaefer. He's laughing along. I'm, every other monologue is like, all guns should be banned or melted down. If you're like stuff like that, laughing along, completely denying it. And that's what's mind blowing to me that he was able to live this life for so long. And in no way I'm saying his, his, this was a struggle for him or it wasn't a struggle for him. That's up to him to decide. But it's mind blowing to me. You and know, maybe he, I should be doing due diligence. Maybe I should be going on LinkedIn more. Maybe, or maybe it's okay. Maybe like, you know, he's, maybe he was kind of a live and let live conservative who, you know, believed in the second amendment. His, his um, mom works maybe still not, I don't think she still does, but worked for the NRA for a long time. He had an NRA bumper sticker on his car when he was pulling into to Wonderland, just people weren't necessarily knowing it was his car. Yeah. And, and maybe he didn't care. Like he, you know, he, his musician friends are going to be liberal. He doesn't have a problem with them being liberal. He's not going to like, you know, be an evangelist everywhere he goes. His job is to be an evangelist and his, personal life is to hang out and have fun and maybe laugh at jokes that that he finds funny even if he doesn't believe in the message underneath it yeah it's just i don't know have you found this to has this happened in your life where you, you you've covered a subject and then you realize oh they're a completely different person it happens or they're hidden i shouldn't say completely different but they've hidden a large aspect of their life yeah i mean it doesn't it's not someone i've covered right if i've covered somebody i i really do work hard to make sure that i'm not writing about them until i have a pretty good understanding of who they are but certainly like in my life going to happy hours, which I don't do nearly as much now that I have two children and, and, you know, live far enough away that I don't have to go to happy hours, but going to happy hours or work events or going to the Hill and getting sources, people who I didn't actually cover, but who maybe, you know, helped kind of guide me towards stories, uh, finding out later, like what they were all about and being like, Oh, I never would have guessed that. Sure. That happens all the time because to work here, you know, to, to be effective, at least historically in Washington, you need to be able to kind of get along with anybody. Some of the 
the nicest people in person I've dealt with are like some of the kind of most vile politicians. I mean, I used to interview occasionally Steve King, the congressman from Iowa, who like, you know, he was the guy who couldn't have been more xenophobic if he tried, basically. But in person, one on one, he was very nice and very charming. And it's like, oh, right. You can't be a congressman unless you can get people to like you. And then you can do whatever you want. But you need to be good at that one on one thing. And so there are a lot of people who can be charming. And then you find out what their beliefs are. And you're like, oh, I didn't I didn't see that coming. Did you go on a hunting trip with him? No, I went on a hunting trip with a congressman named Dennis Ross, not to be confused with the former diplomat, Dennis Ross, who at National Journal, we had ranked the most conservative member of the House of Representatives in 2012. It was, you know, after the Tea Party had Mm -hmm. come down. So he was a very conservative guy. And he took me hog hunting uh, in central Florida. And, uh, you know, he was a great time. He's one of these back slapping guys. You know, he hit you so hard on the back, your glasses would fall off your head. Loved to make jokes. They were not always appropriate, but they were always kind of funny. Uh, he wanted to show you a good time, good hospitality. He gave me a handful of guns to try to shoot. And, uh, you know, I went hunting for the first time in my life. I did actually manage to shoot a hog that was like 90 yards away. I somehow hit it. That's like, good, I guess. Yeah. But the gun also did go backwards it had the recoil mm-hmm. scope hit me in the forehead cut a giant gash in my forehead and i had to go to the emergency room and have it super glued shut so he found that pretty funny and frankly he wasn't wrong it's a good lead for the story i'm assuming it was the lead yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> i mean how could it not be uh, 7 30 in the morning and already the congressman and i are covered in blood there's so many anecdotes in your book about people pouring you drinks mm. Almost every single piece that you reported on in the DMV area, you had to drive to and from home. Were you ever worried about someone reading this book and thinking like, man, this guy drunk drove a lot? Yeah, I mean, I didn't drink drink, drink and drive. What I would do is I would stick around a lot longer yeah. uh, than I would have wanted to, right? So it's like going out to this guy, Robert Strick. He was the guy who kind of provided the most alcohol. In fact, most other people I don't think I did any drinking with. I, I might have, but he was the guy that was like the booze hound of the story. And that was like, you know, an hour and 15 minutes from my home. It would have been a bad, a bad uh, drinking and driving experience. And so I'd go there and I'd drink a couple of drinks and then a couple more maybe, and then hang out with him for many, many, many hours, which was great for reporting. I mean, I just had endless tape and the way people always ask me, like, how do you get people to say the things they say? Or like, why do people, you know, open up to you the way they do? And really the answer is just like social stamina and having time. You know, if you spend enough time with people, the first hour or two, they might talk only in talking points. If you're dealing with a politician, they could have two hours of talking points. And every question you have, they just know exactly which talking point to go to. But nobody has five hours of talking points. And so, you know, when you're getting to the end, eventually you're asking crazy questions and hearing crazy answers. And people are opening up to you in the way they really, you know, about the things they really believe. And and so I think it ended up being good for the story, even though I found it very, very exhausting. For a, a super long reported piece or, or something like this book, do people get back to you once it's published saying, I regret saying this or I wish this wasn't in the book? Yeah, everybody, almost everybody was very mad about at least something. Some people were <laughs> mad about everything. Um, for me, I mean, not to get too into the process because it might be boring to listeners, but for me, it was very interesting because normally when I um, report something for the paper, you know, before it publishes, I might have a call with the the source and kind of, hey, no, you know, I don't want there to be surprises. This is what the gist of the piece is. These are the kinds of quotes I used. And then they see it and it's mostly sight unseen. In this book, I hired fact checkers, which I've never used before. And they 
were just rigorous. And so they would ask about every detail, every fact, every quote, make sure it was all right, make sure there was no um, you know, errors. And because of that, I think some of the steam got let out. And so they got angry before publication because mm-hmm. they were like, I didn't think that was going to be in the book. Why were there so many questions about this? Um, you know, I didn't realize that this was a story, a book about this when I thought it was about this. And a lot of that anger kind of dissipated by the time the book was published. What did the people think the book was about? Um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I think some people thought it would just be about like their ideas, right? There's a lot of people in this book who think of themselves as thought leaders and they might be thought leaders in some way. And and And, and their philosophy is part of the book, right? I didn't want this to be just a book of gossip and juicy tidbits um even though i wanted the book to have those things because it's fun i want people to actually enjoy reading parts of it um but you know there was some philosophy but i think some people thought it would just be here's my vision for the democratic party here's why this solidarity is the most important thing and we should have a populist message about this and that and that that is an interesting book but it's a policy book and it's a slightly different book than the one that i put out what's the gossip in this book i've read this book probably more than any other book this year. I've listened to it and I've read it. We'll talk about the audiobook in a second. But For example, uh, Sean McElwee, a main character in the book who was a pollster and political gambler, uh, would bet on his own polls and ended up losing his job. You could say it's kind of gossipy to get into the machinations of his gambling life, right? Like it's not actually a policy issue. Sure, okay. You know, that, maybe that kind that's of... maybe that from from a forty one year old t- dad of two. I'm like, this is the most milk toast early thirties, late twenties. Like, I'm a bad boy. Like a continuation of college life that's like so sure, incredibly sure. mundane. Sure. There's nothing. There's no there there to me yeah. to be like yeah. that's gossip. I'm assuming you're all doing that. You're all single and young and dumb. Yeah, I mean, there's also you know like. Leah Hunt Hendricks, the oil heiress who uh, wants to be kind of a leading light on the progressive left, she would get upset that I was talking about her dating life. You know, she told me things about how she didn't like her boyfriend when they were first dating and now they're together and they have a child. And, you know, that's kind of embarrassing when you're like, yeah, this guy's obsessed with money and I, I don't like him for that reason. And that's in the book or the fact that her mom and her were having money problems, right? Uh, she's rich, but only rich because her family is rich. Yeah, isn't she the person that whose grandmother provides all the funds for the progressives, something like that? Her aunt, yeah, her, her aunt. aunt. Okay, that's it. Yeah, and, and her mom. Uh, her aunt and her mom are both big deal fundraisers. But once again, this is no different than any other... If you've read anything, if you followed any of this stuff, it's like, that's how it always is. Maybe I'm just so cynical and I've been yeah. here so long. Well, I that part of the book is about how th- things aren't that different, right? Like even in this new Washington where things are supposedly hugely different, it's often just new characters who are doing the same thing, but appearing to be doing something different. Yeah. Uh, what I'm saying is she found it gossipy. To oh, be like, sure, sure. Why are you getting into, you know, how my mom and I are bickering about, you know, whether she's going to donate a million dollars to my to my fund or not? And I'm like, because it's interesting. Oh, yeah. It's interesting to know what actual rich families like succession level rich families are like in real life and how they think about money and how they think about, um, you know, what what inheritance means for their children, for their country. Um, You know, I I felt like it kind of helped paint a, a picture of the world. She thought it painted a picture of her family that uh, was, you know, trite. Trite and accurate, I'd say. Yeah, that's what I think. <laughs> you haven't been sued to my knowledge? I've not, no. no, that's, no, no then no. you're good. Then you're in the clear. Yeah, I, well, knock on wood. I, I am not trying to compare you to the person that had your job before you, but who had your job before you? 
Uh, well, a couple people, um, Mark Leibovich, uh, who's uh, at the Atlantic now, who wrote this town. Exactly. He's and, and I feel like that's OK to bring up because he's literally on the cover of your book. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote a nice little blurb for the book. And I think to say, I think it's safe to say this was pitched to the media. This was pitched to people like me as like the spiritual sequel to this town. It was pitched that way. Yeah. I don't think it is in any way whatsoever. I think this is more of a Studs Terkel-esque um like this is going to live on your bookshelf a lot longer than a this town. I'd liked this town for what it was. This to me is very different. How did you feel about being compared or this book being compared to this town? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Um, first I'll say that I think Mark Leibovich is amazing. I think he's a fantastic writer and, you know, a lot of what I do in my job is trying to kind of live up to the, you know, the, the way that he's done things, you know, look at things in a cynical, sometimes funny, uh, but you know, accurate and thoughtful way and he's just he's, he's a fantastic writer and chronicler of washington and this town is amazing and so being compared to that I, I i honestly take as a compliment but i did not did not think that i was writing the next this town um my publisher when they pitched this idea to me wanted the next this town mm -hmm. and basically like i can't i can't mark Leibovich can do this town better than anybody and so i don't want to do this town light i want to do a coverage of this town but in the way that I can do it. And so his his book is kind of, you know, flitting through lots of characters. Uh, you see somebody and then they're gone. Uh, and it's an amazing tapestry of, of what Washington was like in the Obama years. I, I really wanted to embed with a group of people and get to know them like deeply and make sure that people were following them from the beginning to the end. And in a way I got very lucky. I mean, it's weird to say this because I'm talking about actual human beings, but I got very lucky that this year was a year filled with drama for a lot of these people. And so there was a beginning, there was a middle, and then a lot of them did have big dramatic endings. And I couldn't have guessed that when I picked them, I cast a very wide net and mm -hmm. some people didn't have dramatic years kind of fell away from, from the book. Um, but this is different than this town in that way. And that like you, the people you meet in the beginning, you kind of, I hope you want to see what happens to them at the end. And I, I hope also that you get there and you're like, Whoa, that was a crazy ending. You can't talk about personal politics for obvious reasons, but I think it's fair to say that if there's a new administration or a new old administration next year, that a lot of these people's lives are going to, all of our lives will change, but these people's lives will change maybe very dramatically. Um, any of the people that fell off uh, that didn't make the cut of the book, is there any chance that that could be in a, in a future book or are you just done with books at this point? I don't know if I'm done with books for forever. I mean, books like this, this was very hard. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like as a first book, writing about, you know, a dozen people and following their stories was like, why did I do that? Why didn't I just find one person? Why didn't I find something that had already happened so I could know what the beginning, middle and end was from the jump and then write that story? So I don't know if I'm quite in the headspace to write another book like this one, following people, reporting in real time while also writing. Like to make this seem timely, I had to really crash on this book. I mean, I had to write half of it um in the you know basically last three months of last year mm -hmm. uh, and that's just untenable it's just i can't I, I can't work that way um so yeah there are people that i certainly at least will be covering in the paper right as articles as profiles one character that i cut from the book i had a big profile of this past year he was a food writer a former food writer who ended up being tommy tuberville's national security advisor and he didn't have a very interesting year. He was a fascinating guy. He wore a three-piece suit. He, you know, told stories about working for Graydon Carter at Vanity Fair. 
He worked at, as a food writer at Forbes magazine and Southern Living, and he fixed up old cars. And he he really was like a character that, you, you know, he lived at the Willard Hotel, just like you couldn't make this guy up. And he was amazing. And I was like, this will be a great character for the book. But then nothing really happened with him. Yeah. He was just the guy who had a job. And then last year, this year, actually, Tommy Tuberville was in the news because and continues to be because he had a hold on all of these Pentagon appointments. It was a really big deal and continues to be a big deal where this one former football coach was like, Pentagon, you want to appoint people like I'm going to get in the way of that. And it turned out this guy, Morgan Murphy, was a key advisor to this process. And so I profiled him for the paper as this food writer, this food critic, this traveler, this adventurer who had a hand in kind of mucking up the entire works of Congress. And after that story came out, he lost his job and it was a very dramatic, um, you know, kind of moment for him. And so that made for an interesting article. And I felt like helped explain what Washington was going through in that moment, but didn't quite fit in a book, um, you know, taking place the year before. National Journal doesn't really exist anymore. Not really, no. I mean, um, it does in some form, but not in the form that we were there at. Uh, let's say that post that piece that you read isn't for the Washington Post and it's for, I don't know, Politico or The Hill. Does that does see that man still have his job? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, I think a big reason why he doesn't have the job, I think he technically resigned, um, was because, you know, sometimes there's this rule of thumb in Washington that like, as a staffer, you shouldn't step out in front of your boss. And the story talked a lot about his advisement on this issue and made it seem in some ways like he was the mastermind behind um, the plan. And uh, it wasn't the full, that's not the full picture, but I think there was enough of that, that uh, people were upset. And so we lost the job. You know, if the story goes viral in any publication, uh, I think probably it could have the same outcome. The Washington Post has kind of a built-in audience that's big, but Politico does too. So probably Politico would be the same thing, but I, you know, it's hard to say. Yeah. I've, I think that if you read like, I don't know, three or four books to really understand how DC works this year, this would be a very good one. Um, I'm just going to ask you if you've read The Undertow by Jeff Charlotte. Do you no. know who Jeff Charlotte is? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Have you heard of The Undertow? Uh, did it come out? Is that the book that he had come out recently? Yeah. It's yeah. it's all essays, obviously. Not obviously. It's all essays. It's a lot of the stuff that's like tangentially related to your book. Like there's stuff about January 6th and stuff mm. like that. So you're not you're not familiar with that. Have you read Jewish Space Lasers by Mike Rothschilds? No. That one's great. It's all about how it's about 200 years of conspiracy theories and how it all is essentially just like one big anti-Semitic trope that is once again informed by a lot of people in this (laughs) book. And I feel like if this is very like red thread of me, uh, but if you read those three books, it kind of all makes more sense. And you kind of see how power is used and how misinformation is used. And it's both inspiring and depressing. Speaking of inspiring and depressing, you and I ran into each other at the 2016, yeah, the 2016 Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. Will you be covering DNC this year in Chicago? Will you be covering the RNC this year in Milwaukee? My guess is yes. Um, you know, I'm back on the beat. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a big deal, and it's the, it's the biggest story kind of in in America in a way. And uh, I'm at the Washington Post to cover politics, so my guess is I'll be there. Do you feel safe at the Washington Post right now? Safe, like job security yes. wise? Yeah, I do. I mean, it's a tough time. The yeah. industry is going through a lot, obviously. Um, we've just uh, announced that uh, the number of buyouts that were offered, we wanted to have the, the management wanted to have 240 people accept buyouts and they did. So it's a smaller paper than it was for better or for worse. Um, 
politics reporters have been mostly spared from yeah. uh, this kind of cutback. I mean, I think I, it makes sense. I understand we are going into an election year. Washington is the politics capital of, of the world. Um, it's our bread and butter. You know, I, I don't love being a paper that is only going to be associated with that to a degree. I think it's partly why the Washington Post is struggling is, is it's not, you know, covering more things broader or making a, a having a mandate to kind of extend what it's known for. Um, but, you know, covering politics right now is very important. And, and I think the Washington Post is in a good position to keep doing it. Is the patch vertical you worked for still around? That's a really good question. I have not checked, actually. I should see if if it is, and I should see if my uh, my Babe Ruth piano story is still hidden on the website somewhere. I am both uh, happy and a little bummed out that Brady Shunk thing is the place I was at for seven or eight years. They finally like wiped itself clean about a year ago. So mm-hmm. seven years of bylines are just down the drain. That That's being said, what's the uh, what's the legality of me like republishing stuff? Right. I got paid for it from one place, but that doesn't exist anymore. So what can I do with that? That's a good question. I'm definitely not a legal expert and cannot answer that question. But I also think if you were to just republish it, who's left to exactly you? <laughs> That's how I feel about all of this. Um, are you excited for next year? Are you hesitant for next year? Is it just going to be more of the same? What do you think? I'm trying not to ask any personal. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, no. Um, it's hard to get really excited about this because it is a dark time and you know even even fun and interesting and and evocative stories always kind of have like a note of sadness and scariness to them so i'm not fully excited because you know um it's not a particularly fun time with democracy on the brink right um i think it's an important time and i feel privileged to be you know at a place um that's covering things kind of boldly and in interesting ways and so I am, you know, excited to be part of this team figuring out how to continue covering politics in America. In 2016, you were not a father. You are now a father of two. How has that informed anything that you do? Well, I'm a lot more tired. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to like get my work done in, in smaller windows of time. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, all that stuff I said about things being kind of scary. They're a lot yeah. scarier when you have two young kids. I mean, you just want it's cliched. It's like dumb to even say, but like you just want this place to be better for them than it is for us. And it's unclear whether we're on a path to that right now. How does your wife feel about you continuing to do this? Was it was the book good for the marriage and different to the marriage, just a different type of relationship for a little bit? It, it depends on what part of the process you're talking about. I mean, there were times where it was amazing, right? Where I had a I took a year off from the Washington Post, which meant my schedule was my own. I could work from wherever. If I needed a week to go, you know. Uh, to Massachusetts, to the woods, to be with family out there and be with the kids. Like I could do that um, and not have to really tell anybody. Uh, You know, when I was crashing on the book, I kind of holed up in a room for weeks on end and, you know, nobody saw me and and that wasn't good for anybody. Um, But overall, I mean, it's, it's, it can be both a very difficult profession to be in while trying to be a family man, because at any given moment you could be sent somewhere, you could feel like you're crashing on something and deadlines are are coming quicker and quicker than ever. But in other ways, it's great because you do kind of get to make your own schedule in a way that nine to fives, nine to sixes, nine to seven jobs just don't allow. I can make sure that I'm home for dinner most nights. I can make sure that I take the kids to school in the morning. And so, you know, I'm I'm lucky, especially because my job as a a feature writer means I'm not on a deadline every single day. I've seen you at the Tacoma Park Farmer's Market more weekends than not. Do your kids also enjoy the juggler? 
Oh yeah, they love the juggler. And sometimes I see him walking around like off hours and it like blows my mind. I'm like, oh, it's the juggler. Do you like the juggler? Uh, you know, no comment. <laughs> Do you like the relationship your kids are bonding or forming with the juggler? Yeah, I, I have no problem with it. You know, any, I do. Yeah. You, you have a problem with it? I have a huge problem with it. What's the problem? They like they like it more than they like you? The juggler. No, the kids love me. The juggler is teaching the children that it's okay to interact with the performer. Yeah. But, you know, maybe some performers it's okay to interact with. Yeah. Try to. <laughs> yeah. But you, you, we have small children. Mm-hmm. We are setting up a bad precedent here. I do not like the juggler. I'm glad the juggler is making money. Um, I, I do wonder how much. People Venmo the juggler because no one is carrying cash anymore. And the juggler has a Venmo. I Venmo I Venmo, every time I sit down, I Venmo him $5. $5. So how much do you think he's pulling every morning? How much do you think is his hourly rate from the Tacoma Park Farmers Market? I can't, I can't tell you. Hard to say. Also, I hope he's not a listener of this podcast. I don't think he is. He I don't think the juggler a, is. A detractor. There was a guy yeah, maybe not. that was trying to do stand-up comedy at the height of the pandemic uh, where, where the juggler performs when we were at Tacoma Beverage Company and um, I shut that down because well I am f- friends with many many stand-ups stand-up comedy should never be forced upon someone <laughs> specifically fair. when you're essentially caged in an area yeah. and I think that you should be able to say all the four little words you want but not when there are small children around right so the juggler does not bother me nearly as much no, that would be rough. Plus, you like, you know, it's not going to be a really good audience when everybody is like grabbing children and keeping them from running into the road and like yeah, only it's a, half a joke. It's, it's a bad look. Are you glad you're in Tacoma Park, Maryland? Oh, I, I don't think I like ruined it. For, <laughs> like, I feel like I could say that. No, I, I I love it here. I think it's a great place to live. Uh, do you ever wish you were on the Tacoma Park DC side, or does it even matter? I think I would be just as happy on the Tacoma Park DC side. I mean, it's yeah. just a nice kind of geographic location with good things around and good people around. Do you ever see yourself leaving the area? Yeah. Um, you know, unclear how or when, especially because, like I said, journalism jobs are hard to come by and I have a good one. So, you know, I'm not about to give it up, but uh, I don't see myself necessarily as a lifer here. But then again, I like it here a lot more than I expected. And so if I ended up being here for, you know, most of my life and my kids grew up in, you know, in this place, it's a great place to grow up. But it, there are worse things that could happen. What about your wife? Uh, I think she feels similarly, but maybe would like to go uh, to Massachusetts more than than stay here. So you're like really pulling for both of the kids maybe to end up in college in Massachusetts? By then, it's like, what's the difference? You know, I think she wants to be there like, you know, now. sooner rather than later. Yeah, I kind of understand her point of view. Ben, I loved your book. It's weird. Could I read you a piece from your book? Please. Also, it's called The Big Break in case nobody caught that. It'll be in the, it'll be in the start. Trust <laughs> me. Yeah, it'll be weird. But read. Go ahead. Uh, by the way, yeah, was it weird hearing your audiobook? Oh, I didn't listen. The oh, idea... really? <laughs> no, I, I I heard I listened to like clips from a bunch of people so I could pick the voice that I I most liked. But the idea of hearing my own words read to me for many many hours was very daunting and terrifying. And there so was I... no chance you were going to try to do it. No, no, because the only thing worse than being criticized for not liking my book would be if somebody didn't like my book and also said I had a stupid voice. And then I'd be like, well, I can't live anymore. Like that's just too much for me. Do, do you read reviews? Uh, yeah, I read. I'm, I'm not immune to that. Of course. Yeah. I... That's impressive. This is uh page 154. I've read this on Mike multiple times. This is the Ian was a spokesman by day and musician by night paragraph. Uh, but Ian's favorite spot to play music was the Wonderland ballroom, a dive bar in Columbia Heights, a residential neighborhood with two main drags of bars and restaurants. Wonderland 
Like many of the spots running up and down 11th and 14th Street, served an eclectic clientele of regulars, but was mostly known for their type of young professionals who change into panel search to grab beer and shot specials after work. It served greasy eggplant fries on its large outdoor patio, and the upstairs of the bar hosted hipster dance parties, live podcast tapings, and concerts. You've been part of those live podcast tapings. That's right. Ian was part of those live podcast tapings. Yeah. That's what blows my fucking mind, that I'm now just a tangential character. I'm like on the outskirts of being a character in books like this. Adam Freeland was on my show for like five years straight, and he's part of the dirtbag left. And we got Ian here, and it's a snake eating its tail where I don't know where I stand. I don't know where you You seem to be above board. I don't know what you're doing on the side. I hope Every, I Everything seems so stupid and incredibly important at the exact same time. And if you well, don't want to care about any of this, it's incredibly easy to live your entire life completely unaware of all of this. And maybe that's the better way to go. Also, importantly and tragically, they don't serve the eggplant fries there anymore. It's for the best. Oh, those were so good, though. They were so greasy. Yeah, but come on. So bad. <laughs> uh, their sister bar, Do Drop In, has, I think they call it like a redneck special. Mm. It's like $20 for all you can eat, like corn chips and chili on the corn chips and disgusting food like that. So it's a great bar, Do Drop In. They used to have this deal where they're on the train tracks where when the yep. two trains passed each other, you could get a drink special, which I thought was very oh, that's fun. cool and old timey. What's your one hope for 2024? My one hope uh, that we all just get through it. That's nice and diplomatic. Look at you. That's why you have a job at the Washington Post. <laughs> yeah, for now. Thanks, bud. Thank you.